Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Judy Churchin. Judy founded JPT Partners, a global advisory group, after leaving her role at Equinox as Chief Operating Officer in May of 2021. Prior to joining Equinox, Judy worked at Blackstone, where she expanded her role beyond legal and began managing people, culture, and the compensational aspects of the business. Judy is equally impressive off paper as she is on, and during the conversation, we cover everything from our shared love of fitness to talking about how having a job at an early age instills a certain level of grit in oneself. Judy, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. Um, Why don't we start at the beginning and you tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up? Sure. Hi, Mallory. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Um, What was life like growing up? Ah, probably a pretty untraditional uh, childhood in a lot of ways. I am first generation American. So both my parents are immigrants. Um, My mom came from Hungary, my dad from Romania. So sort of a very traditional immigrant family. English was not my first language, definitely one of those things where um, Hungarian was spoken at home and I sort of thought everyone spoke a different language at home. So only to go to school and realize that every, most everyone else in the town that I grew up in spoke English. So, um, but super fortunate, had, um, had, the, had the great fortune to get an opportunity to go to college, uh, went to Rutgers on a scholarship and it was there that I sort of discovered that there was this whole world out there. I I majored in political science and English and I loved politics and I loved this idea that, you know, as you get to meet people and this opportunity to sort of change the world. And so that began to happen as I was working for politicians in um, in college and then went to law school as, as folks kind of do political science and English. I'm not sure what it would have qualified me to do otherwise. Um, and then graduated law school, moved to the city and that began sort of what has been an amazing, for me at least, lifelong career, series of career choices. So I understand that your parents were Holocaust survivors, and I've spoken, um, my mom grew up, and her parents were also survivors, and um, in previous conversations that you and I have had, it seems like there's patterns when you are a child of Holocaust survivors, such as um, not wanting to throw away food, or really the emphasis on education is, you know, getting a job because God forbid the bottom falls out again. Did those small details play a role a little bit? Or is that certain things you remember about growing up that you now realize probably were reactions to the trauma that they went through? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's so interesting. I am when you consider my age, I am sort of the last of the children of Holocaust survivors, right? And so it's interesting. I don't have peers that also have parents that are Holocaust survivors. There's very few people in my orbit. And I think as I've gotten older and 
and you said a few things when we've talked previously that sort of struck a chord with me. Yes, 100% food did not get thrown out in my house and still does not get thrown out in my house right now, much to my teenage children's chagrin when there's like leftovers or, or you know, something as simple as that. And, you know, it, it's interesting because you sort of think that's the way everyone is um, until you sort of get older and wiser and realize, yes, this is certainly a pattern of people who had food insecurity, you know, both my parents didn't know where their meal was going to come from. So yes, but, and that's sort of the challenging part. I would say the thing that is most interesting to me and something that I am so grateful for is the love of travel. Like growing up in Europe, my parents were constantly, you know, sort of exposed to different cultures. And one of the things that my father did that I'm so lucky for when I was young is he took us every summer and we went to Europe. We had no money. I don't know how we did it, he wanted us to experience culture sort of across the the spectrum of what culture means like not just be us citizens although he was super proud to be an american but really wanted us to understand where we came from heritage i think is a big part of what you mentioned um and so every summer we literally got on an airplane packed a car when we got over to wherever we were going and then went around europe camping but i've seen every country in europe and my dad spoke nine languages fluently, which is a pretty incredible accomplishment, but I don't think he even thought it was an accomplishment because you were, you know, a citizen of the world. And I think Europe at that time felt very much like, you know, you would just travel borders were relatively open um, as they are now. And, and so, yes, there's a lot of, I would say trauma, but there's also a lot of greatness in having parents who have been through an experience like that, who really say like, you know, they came here to have me. They came here to have a daughter that was born in a free country. Like, how lucky am I? Um, and I feel that every day. It's interesting because obviously um, it was my grandparents that were the survivors, but they also spoke, my grandmother, my bubby spoke seven languages and worked for the airlines to help with translating. They traveled extensively and my aunt and uncle were born in Russia, but my mom was born here. Similar. I know your sisters were born in Hungary. You were born here, but my grandparents always were just so proud to live in this country with that freedom. And yes. as we're having this conversation, we're seeing what's going on in Europe and the Ukraine. And it's just crazy to me that people's freedoms or simple things that we take for granted just really are being decimated right now. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's very, what's happening in the Ukraine is unbelievable to me. And, you know, my mother who's from Hungary survived the Hungarian revolution in 1956, which for those of your listeners that don't know, it's an, it's an important point in history. And I think well worth sort of brushing up on because it really is reminiscent of what is happening in the Ukraine right now. The Russian tanks coming down the, you know, the, the streets of Budapest, Hungary, um, it was bloody and horrible. And it was the same thing. Putin wasn't there, but it, you know, sort of extensively, you know, Russia sort of trying to dominate another country. And so I do feel at times, you know, history repeating itself, like it's scary. And I, and I know that the president of Ukraine has called that out as like, this cannot happen again. And I think, you know, as I look at myself and sort of my role in all of this, part of it is to be the historical memory banks for you know the folks that came before me and to remind people like you know this happened in 56 in Hungary it happened in 45 in Romania like all of these things happen and like they can't happen again history is a great teacher you took the words if right we out let my, it be 
out of my mouth, history repeats itself. And one goal of this podcast is really to educate people and to hopefully also create some more empathy and kindness to take a step back and understand where someone's position's coming from or to learn from somebody about what they've gone through in hopes that next time you do have an interaction with someone, you approach it in a more empathetic and kind way versus how I think we approach things. And I know that you were the um, COO of Equinox in 2020 when the world kind of shut down and you saw great, um, you saw people really come together, but then you also saw a different side of people too. So it was on both sides of the coin, but as you as a leader with, I believe Equinox had 500, 105 locations. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you as a leader keep your employees like reassured, calm, how, because I feel like, yes, you're a leader, but you're also now going into this role of a friend, a mentor, someone to listen to while you're also dealing with what's going on. How do I protect not only the members, but the staff? How did you pivot and wear multiple hats during that time? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I think it's less of a pivot and more of a continuum. I think to the extent that we were successful, I was successful sort of leading through COVID. I think a lot of it was predicated on the relationships and the empathy and sympathy and like in the trenches work, you know, I had done with the team. So I, I was known already, thankfully, to the 14,000 employees by and large. And I think what it allowed me to do is sort of remind folks that like, we haven't changed as people. Circumstances around us have changed, but what we stand for, what I stood for as a leader, what the company stood for in terms of vision and mission and um, sort of grounding hasn't changed. And I think from an organizational perspective, it is the best place you can be in, right? If you live your values as an organization, when crisis happens, you're able to really call upon that. I think the same is true for leadership. If you have a form of leadership that is authentic and that is empathetic and that is kind and just and generous, that when crisis comes, people trust that you will do the right thing. And so what it allows them to do is sort of stay with you and not feel that the ship is sinking, but rather that you you remain at the helm doing the things that you did before, just under more difficult circumstances. So, you know, there's a lot written about like, you've got to build that trust. And from there, you know, great things can happen. I was fortunate that I had a few years before COVID hit to build that trust with the team and then use that as the platform to show that I continue to mean what I said and say what I mean um, and, and kind of lead through that. But it was unique for all of us. I think every leader I spoke to at that time And I spoke to a lot of them across a lot of different, whether it's financial services, direct to consumer, um, you name it. Everyone struggled as a leader. Everyone struggled as an employee. Everyone struggled as a leader. It was an issue of first impression for all of us. I had, you know, I was at the helm of an organization, Lehman Brothers, when we filed for bankruptcy. I sort of thought I knew what crisis looked like, right? I had seen the great financial crisis of our generation. And I'm like, okay, been through that, led through that this is a whole different, this was a whole different world, right? People's health and well-being 
were at stake. Very different, not to say better or worse, just very different than a financial well-being. Absolutely. And I think that when you think about Equinox, um, I know we have spoken previously about our mutual love of fitness and that community. And you can be having a horrible day. Your life can kind of be imploding, but you go to that fitness class or you walk into the gym and you see that community and you feel supported. And when COVID hit, not only did you lose a routine because a lot of people working out first thing in the morning, it's a routine, but you lost that sense of community. And yes, we did virtual workouts and I appreciate you coming on to Zoom to record this because I I know I'm having Zoom fatigue. I can only imagine what your experience has been. But do you think, I guess my question is with community, did you feel that it got stronger when COVID hit, that people were still checking in? Because I know, at least for me and my fitness community here in Chicago, people were texting or when we were able to kind of go on walks with masks, that was a big thing. Um, but I felt like the sense of community was still there. We were checking in on each other. And I'm sure Equinox was the same, but as someone in the organization, did you see members come together in a way that you were surprised about? I think I was surprised, you know, having been a member for 15 years before I came to run the organization, I knew firsthand, like why it was so special. So it wasn't a surprise to me. It was sort of like an expectation that of course, we're going to look in for each other and look out for each other. And like, we're family, like some of my closest best friends are women, you know, and men that I've met there. And so it just felt like, again, you sort of form this basis that like carries you through crisis and this it was expected to me um you know the team coming together for one another it was amazing you know people would get on at lunchtime and just you know do a quick class together um i just i really love that and i do think yes i am so passionate about fitness separate apart from equinox whether it's equinox like i i fundamentally believe that fitness can change life. And I don't mean fitness as in like, you have to be the best and the strongest, but just sort of that, that routine, that ability to sort of engage with others in the pursuit of health and well-being at every age, at every level is such a gift. And I think, um, I think it really showed through COVID and, and look, it was a very harsh time financially for everyone who owned or ran any sort of fitness enterprise. And that was very hard to watch because anyone who's in this business is in this business because they love it, not because they're going to get rich quick. Like this is not a get rich quick business. This is a business that you and I, right. We relate to one another because we have this profound belief that this is like a place of happiness for us. Anyone who's in this also feels that way. And so to watch folks, many of whom were, you know, independent owners of private gyms or studios, to watch what they had to go through was really, really hard. And I think, again, community rallied around them. And we're going to see that coming out of COVID. I think all of these folks will reopen in some different capacity because people are there to want them to succeed. I know I'm waiting. I'm waiting for everyone to reopen and waiting to be able to take advantage of going to their classes and doing that and supporting them in the rebirth of the sort of physical attributes of what fitness is going to look like coming out of COVID. You know, it's funny. I have a, some friends that are surprised at how much I spend on fitness classes. And like for my parents, when they listen to this episode, no, like it's budgeted, like, don't worry. But 
I definitely spend <laughs> a decent amount on fitness classes because for me, it's a social aspect. It makes me feel good. I working out makes me think a lot and work through work problems or any issues I'm trying to solve, but I would rather spend $30 on a class than to go out to have a drink. And so I think when you start to get into that healthy mindset, it becomes, um, I don't want to say an addiction because it has such a negative term, but it becomes something that empowers you and that allows you to meet other people that maybe you don't know, but you're all coming together to take a yoga class or to spin or when someone PRs like a lift, you're just so proud because you know how hard they've been working. And I think that sometimes with the fitness community, especially chain big boxes or, you know, boutique studios, they get a little bit of a bad rap or that culty like label, but it's really more of a place where you feel empowered and you feel connected to people that just want to cheer you on. Yeah. It's hard. You have to... I tell a lot of people, like, I understand it can feel intimidating to walk into a place that you don't know, but trust me, like, no one's there to judge you. Like, I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me. I, I have to remind myself, this is where, like, coming back to your theme of, like, empathy. I think everyone who is at a fitness facility needs to, like, be reminded constantly of the first day they walked in the door and how intimidating it can feel and be. I came to fitness very late in my life. Like I was not an athlete growing up at all, like quite the opposite, right? Like I came late in my life and then got the bug probably in my thirties and have never looked back. But I remember really, really like vividly sort of what that journey in the beginning felt like and looked like. And then, you know, you sort of say like, what are accomplishments? Like, I'm so proud of like a lot of my work accomplishments, but I think it's okay also to be proud. Like I remember the first time I swam a 5K swim race, an open water 5K swim race, um, which is just over three miles. It's a long way to swim, like a really long way. It is. I was not the first. I was not, let, let, let your audience realize I was not the first out of the water. Was I the last out of the water? I'm not sure. I might've been. But like to me, the sheer accomplishment of having come from not having ever done something like that to finishing a 5K, like- that's the journey and that's where people cheer you on and that's where like it's possible like if I can do it literally I say if I can do it anyone can do it and people are like well you're Randy Quinox I'm like no rewind the tape you know however many years 20 years to me taking my first step into a gym in my life and then to fast forward to swimming a 5k open water swim race like okay tell me where else you get that sort of personal accomplishment um it's pretty incredible and people supporting you. I can relate. I remember I signed up for a half Ironman on New Year's Eve. I didn't own a bike. (laughs) I never ran more than three miles. And I used to swim competitively, but never in open water. And for eight months, I really committed myself to training, work with the training group that became like family, cheered me on. But I would say that the lessons I learned during that time period training, I was able to then apply to my professional career. And I think that they go hand in hand and people don't realize that. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I think there's a fortitude. You know, I, I oftentimes say like persistence pays off. I would say that is true, whether it's at the gym or at work, like being persistent, whether you call it grit persistence, I, you know, I don't know. There's lots of terms for it. Um, 
that's going to pay dividends. Like, and that's where, I don't know, that's, I think a lot of times what separates good from great is people willing to do that hard work. You know, I think it's funny you say you signed up on New Year's Eve. I would love a statistic to show us how many people sign up for races um, on, on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. It's such a like, you know, profoundly like turn of the calendar. Um, I love that story from you. So that I, I, I'll have to look into that research of like yeah. how many people click yes on New yeah. Year's Eve. Yeah. Um, so I would say something that's, if you had your resume or if our listeners had your resume in front of them, it's so accomplished. It's inspiring. But what's interesting is that you pivoted. You went away from the financial services into helping run Equinox. And I know we've spoken about, and I've talked to so many people about this, is when you're at a job and it's good, it's paying the bills, you're good at it, but you don't feel that same inspiration. You don't feel that same excitement necessarily all the time, but you're too afraid to leave or you're comfortable. And I think the idea of going to a different company, switching industries is something that's very scary. What advice would you have for those listeners who are contemplating it? Or what, how long did it take you to finally take the jump and to make a move? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, you know, I would say a few things. One is I have yet to meet someone who makes a change and says, oh gosh, like that looks back and says like, oh, I, I, I wish I hadn't, honestly. Like, I, I can't think of anyone who has. That being said, I think what can give your listeners comfort is you can always go back. You can, there's always going to be a job in whatever it was, the career that you thought you really loved, but left to go find something else to do. So like, nothing is permanent other than, well, there's some things that are permanent tattoos and other things, but nothing is so permanent that you cannot go back. And so I think if you look at everything as so black and white versus a continuum, it can be scary. I don't know that I had this, like, I am going to pivot and become an operator mindset. For me, it was just truly about going to run a brand that I felt passionately about. And I do feel like when you combine something that you love with what your work is, you're by definition going to be great at it, right? Like it just passion fuels greatness. And so I think that there's, you know, I think your listeners can get comfort from when they think about making that leap. If they're doing it because they're truly passionate about what they're leaping to, chances are they're going to be great at it. So like feel comfort in that, I would say. And number two is they can go back. And number three, no one's judging them. They're the, you know, we're our harshest critics in a lot of ways. And so I think that um, people begin to think about how others are perceiving them and what's going to happen. The truth is very few people other than maybe, you know, if you're lucky enough to have your parents, if you're lucky enough to have siblings, like your family may care and some good friends, but even they're there to cheer you on and won't judge. So um, I say do it. I was you know, I don't know that I was scared because I never thought failure was an, you know, was an option. Like I was just going to go do it. And, um, and again, I could always go back to being a lawyer. Being a lawyer will always be there. Like, so why not try something new? And, and for me, it was the excitement of having a new chapter and, and putting myself forward to do something that maybe felt a little uncomfortable, but the rewards could be phenomenal. So as I was preparing for this interview, one thing I learned is that you had 
been working since you were 12. And it was something that I could relate to. I've been working since I was 14. I cannot ever remember not having a job, if not two. And that also includes right. college. And I know for me, I have friends that their first job was right off college. And that was that. I think that there's something really important about working when you're younger, understanding the value of a dollar and what it's like to work, especially for smaller businesses that mm -hmm. it's the mom and pop store. You're helping them. This is their livelihood. Do you feel like that helped build your work ethic working from such a young age and for the jobs um, that you had growing up? Yeah, no, I, it, I do. And as you're like, asking, as you're asking me this question, like, literally, I'm having flashbacks to the two family businesses. So as a, my first job, of course, was babysitting. I don't say of course, but like, as a 12 year old, like, what else was I qualified to do, but started babysitting. But then I remember, like, my first real job was working for a, um, a pizza parlor in town run by a husband and wife. And they worked very hard. This was their primary source of income. And I remember feeling really responsible and they were as kind to me as if I were their own daughter. And so there was an expectation that I would show up and work hard. And there was an expectation that I, they were leading by example of what it meant to work hard. So it's just interesting to hear you say that it sort of brought back vivid memories. And then I graduated from them to in college working for a man who owned his own photo developing store in New Brunswick, who was also like, it's so interesting. I, I don't think it then, I, I only now appreciate like, to your point, he was providing for his family. He taught me a lot about leadership. He was such a generous person with us, like literally went out of his way to host us all for a very elaborate holiday party at a time when he, like we were young, college students working part-time, you know, to have us to a nice restaurant and to host us. And then I remember him giving us Christmas bonuses, like, again, things that he did not need to do, but have like stuck with me as a way that like, just that's how he led. And I wanted to work hard for him. And it has really kind of carried me through, like, it takes so little and people um, appreciate whatever, you, you know, like takes a little to make people feel appreciated by and large. And he did that. And I, yeah, I hope, I hope a little bit of that rubbed off on me. No, it's interesting you say that, like you learn from those two examples, kind of how to be a good leader. When I was younger, I worked at um, a gift shop that was owned by two sisters and then their friends all worked there. But I remember when my mom came in once, um, the owner said, she's great. She's, she always is cleaning. Like I'm always cleaning, making sure everything looks nice because it was their store. And I wanted to show them, like, I respected the fact that they, this was a livelihood. This was like, you know, helping them with their families, but how they treated me, they would invite me, we would do holiday parties or if it was birthdays or anything. And even now we still keep in touch, but because I saw how they were giving positive feedback or re actually caring about what was going on in my life. And I was in high school, going into college, still worked for them until they closed the store it made me realize when I got a chance to manage others, I wanted to go out my way to build authentic relationships with those I was managing and help them professionally and also personally 
like be there. And I think that when you don't necessarily start out at a smaller company or your first job isn't so small and you go into one of these organizations that have hundreds of thousands of people, it's really hard to understand what a good manager is and then how, if you get to the point in your career to be a good manager. And there's this disconnect. As somebody who's led leaders, how do you encourage leaders to be their best selves and show up the way that you would want someone to show up for you? Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to make you laugh though. I think what you and I experience as young employees, my son who a few summers ago during COVID took a job in a clothing store, thanks to a friend of mine who took a chance on him and he had the same experience. So he was 14 working in a clothing shop and spent a lot of his time like folding and in the basement, but like this is still happening. And I think it's a gift, you know, as it, to the extent your listeners like sort of have kids or think about a time maybe in the future where they might like remind yourself to like force, not force, but encourage your children to do it because he it's came away best. with the same lesson. Yeah. He came away. So how do I, how do I help people be great leaders? Is that sort of the question? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'd love for you to ask all the people that have worked with me. Um, look, I think I think the key is developing a relationship of trust, and then giving honest feedback, giving and getting. You know, like I think also I think I hope people will say that I'm very open to the feedback. Right? Like I want as much feedback as I'm willing to give, and I I oftentimes say like I think feedback is a gift. And so giving it and getting it is really critical. And I think, look, I I don't think you can teach someone to be a leader. I really don't. There's like no magic book. We've all read leadership books. It comes down to caring about the people. Like it has to be authentic. You can read all the leadership books you want, but unless you care about the people who are helping you do whatever it is you're doing, you're not going to, you may be a great leader on paper, but you won't, people won't, want to follow you as a great leader unless they feel like you care about them and their well-being and you can provide them skills to be better at their job than they were before they came along on the ride with you I hope and sometimes that's tough like you know I don't know I it's not always leading from like you're the greatest like I you know one of the women that works for me I was at a wedding recently and she came up to me and she's still at the company that I was with. And she came up to me and she's like, you were really tough. And she's like, and I am thankful for the time that I spent with you. She's like, you were always fair, but you were like very demanding. And I now see like you needed us to help, like you needed us to do what we needed to do so that you could do what you needed to do. So like fair, but tough and kind. And like, we're still friends to this day. And so it, it's a tricky, tricky balance to be a great leader. There is no easy answer other than caring, really caring about and for the people that you're doing it with. No, I agree. And I think having a leader that is tough, I've had leaders or managers that have been tough, but they taught me lessons because they saw that's where I was lacking or I needed to grow more. So it was kind of that test of, I'm going to be tough on you because I know you can rise to the occasion and I see the potential and I'm going to bring it out of you. It's, yeah. But that's also where we kind of get into the growth mindset. Anytime you grow, it's not comfortable. 
growth is not an enjoyable process. You're learning from something, you're experiencing something, and sometimes it is failure, but how do you grow from it? Um, when you think of growth mindset, what comes to mind for you and how do you apply it? Such a, yeah, it's such a great question. We, I think of growth mindset as being willing to take chances. So like, whether that, that just means like getting outside of your comfort zone and constantly learning. I'm a big believer in sort of the eternal student in all of us, right? So growth mindset means not assuming you have all the tools, but constantly be on a journey to better yourself, even in an area of expertise, right? Like I'm a lawyer and I've been a lawyer for you know 30 years, but there's so much I could still do and learn in that field if I were to still be in that. Now the growth mindset is leadership for me, right? Like how do I continue on a journey to be a better leader? How do I continue on a, a journey to be a better strategist? And all of that comes from the like burning desire to continue to learn. So growth to me comes from learning. And that means reading everything that I can, speaking to people like in whatever form it takes, but constantly being curious. Like curiosity and growth mindset to me are very much hand in hand synonymous. Um, so after you left Equinox, you started your own advisory firm, JPT Partners. Talk to our listeners about what it is and where do you want to take it next? Yeah. So for the first time in my entire life, I am working for myself, which feels um, interesting and growth mindset and all the things that we talked about sort of rolled into one, which is, you know, um, I, I've again sort of pivoted, right? Like I made the sharp right out of financial services to direct to consumer. And now I've made the sharp right to be my own, um, my own boss and to start my own firm. I am really focused on helping companies work through what are their most challenging, you know, opportunities, right? Like that's where I get the most excitement. I, I was just on the phone with a leader the other day, a founder, and, you know, she and I were talking and she's like, well, where could I use you? And I said, where you're going to get the most out of me is focusing with you on whatever issue keeps you up at night. Like, I want to be your thought partner in how we tackle like the issue that is most meaningful to your organization. And so my advisory work is across a lot of different areas, which is sort of fun. So my background is in commercial real estate. So if there is an organization that's looking to expand their brick and mortar footprint, I can help them do that. If there's an organization that's looking to expand geographically, helping one company that wants to expand its business into um, the People's Republic of China. So helping them expand overseas. That's not a real estate play as much as it is sort of an international play. I have another company that's trying to develop a um, direct to consumer brand. So I'm helping them think through branding and marketing. Um, you know, so just across every kind of um, area, I would say customer experience, customer journey is a big part of something that I'm really interested in, as well as operations, sales, marketing. So um, I, I think it's less about what we're doing and sort of the, the idea that there is something that is, you know, sort of a pivotal moment in a company or founder's trajectory where I come in and help them sort of get over that hump. And that hump means a, a high growth trajectory beyond that. Like this is what's in the way between, you know, the beginning of a company and sort of the, the fast paced growth that will come after you solve this tricky problem. 
And where can listeners uh, learn more if they want to look you up? Should they look at LinkedIn or do you have a website? Where should um, listeners go? For now, probably LinkedIn. I feel like um, I've probably got to get to the website, Mallory. So thank you for reminding me. Um, I will do that. But for now, they can find me on, on LinkedIn under my name, Judy Turchin. Um, and website to come now that you've, I'll put it on my to-do list after we're done. I, I didn't mean to add more to your list. No. I know you're. No, it's good. Woman. It's good. You're right. You're right. I love it. See, this is where feedback. Yeah. It's a good call out. So I end every episode with the same three questions. So the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? So mine is, and mine is just buy the fucking cheesecake. Um, which means nothing out of context, but means everything when put in the context of how I have managed to have my career as a mother, as, you know, a married mother of two teenagers, which is like, when it came time to birthday cakes and things like that, I would sort of sweat or like, oh my God, I got to get home. I got to bake the cake so that tomorrow at school, I show up with, you know, a freshly baked cake for my son's birthday party. And I got to the point where I got comfortable enough to say, I'm just going to go buy the cake. I'm not going to spend all night. I'm going to sleep eight hours instead of staying up all night. And that is how I'm going to manage to be a great mom and a great professional and a great wife and a great sister. Like all of it means like I cannot be perfect in one area. I have to be able to, you know, bend and sort of stretch into whatever I need to do so that I can keep all the balls up in the air. So mine is just buy the damn cheesecake. I think that's such an important message, especially for women, because you wear so many hats and like, you don't need to be perfect. Just do stuff to make it easier. You need to get through it. Yes. 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 And no one's, again, it goes back to no one's judging. And so no one cared whether I bought the cake or I made the cake. It's cake. No one cares whether you buy it. It's cake. Well, it has frosting and it has sugar. Yes. Right. So buy, buy the fucking cheesecake. Yes. I love that one. Um, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Oh, I thought a lot about this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm sorry. I can't say one day because there's not, there's, I want to relive a great day, which for me, like there's so many, but for me, I think in, in the theme of sort of fitness and like things that I did, like the first time I raced a triathlon, like coming across that finish line, I want to relive that because it was such a proud moment for me of doing something that I never thought physically my body would let me do. Um, And so just that euphoria, both the endorphins, as well as the feeling of accomplishment of like, I just raced a triathlon, like, it was an Olympic distance, it wasn't full, like, full disclosure, but like, still, who can, like, it was a big deal for me. Um, And then I'd love to, you know, it's sort of a a sad day, but I would love to relive the last day that my dad was alive um, just with him. So that's just, of course, you know. No, I think both those days are so relatable to so many listeners. Um, I have curiosity. I know I cried when I was crossing the finish line for my half Ironman. It was an ugly cry because I was trying to breathe as I was running and I was like (laughs) crying. Um, Did you get emotional or what? Oh, I still do. Yeah. Yeah, I still do every accomplishment. Like, I think that those are like, I think that's part of the journey is that sort of release of emotions that goes into it. I think it's, you know, a lot of people go to traditional therapy and some people go to the gym. I say, my therapy is the gym. I am not judging, you know, I'm not suggesting 
that that's therapy in the traditional sense. I'm not demeaning in any way what happens really in therapy, but for me it is. So I get it when you cry and you laugh and it's like all the emotions. So yes, I still race and I still cry and um, it's all good. And everyone just thinks it's, you know, sweat pouring down my, yeah. my, you know, forehead. So no one needs to know now all your <laughs> listeners know, but other than that, we'll keep it our secret. Um, and then the final question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? So it's funny at, at Equinox, we did a lot of events. And so I never before Equinox, I, there's a lot of, I never before Equinox statements, but I never before had an entrance song. Like who in financial services has an entrance song? You don't enter like a closing room and people like play. So mine was Lizzo, good as hell. Um, and I think it was just sort of fun because it was my first. And so um, I credit, there's a woman at Equinox that sort of spearheaded that journey with me. And so I credit her for like, even introducing me to what an entrance song even meant. So uh, had one and, and that's sort of a good memory of, of sort of my first. So I will go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist that's on Spotify. So you can listen to your theme song as well as all our guests theme songs as well. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. fun. That's a yeah. good, that's a good idea. I like that. It's all over the board, which I think really represents what this podcast is about, which I love. I love that. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to save it and download it. So yeah. good. So Judy, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I've loved this conversation. I'm really excited to see what happens next for you and where your career goes and I'm sure I'll be reading about all the amazing companies that you're helping. Well, so, thank you. It's great yeah. to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It was a fun conversation. Yeah. So lots of topics. Appreciate it. And thank you to your listeners for um, being along with us on the journey. 